So, summertime is here. Christy and I were talking yesterday about the reality that not only is summertime here, but we're almost done with June. Did anybody blink and miss June? Oh, my goodness. But we have a very short summer season here, so let's embrace it. Let's take a hold of it and go for the gusto and have a good summer. But one of the things that we, I do during the summertime is to teach a topical series. Uh, the first year I was here, I taught a series on the four words. Uh, last year, did a series on Galatians chapter 6, the weapons of our warfare, dealing with spiritual battles that we all face. This year, uh, my summer series, it's going to be a series of 10 messages, is going to be building godly disciplines into our lives. And it's going to be based out of the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea is to take what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and to begin to apply those teachings into our lives. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, well-known passage of Scripture, of course. It's in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Today we'll go through the first 16 verses of chapter 5, one of the most famous sections of Scripture in the first 11 verses, the Beatitudes. What I want you to know, though, as we enter into this study, and it's very important for everyone who hears my voice today to understand this very basic truth about the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus was teaching these things to his disciples. Look what it says in the first couple of verses. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, for the Jewish rabbi, the posture of sitting indicated that he was preparing to teach something. But then it says, His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So this lesson, these three chapters out of, cha- out of the Gospel of Matthew are specifically addressed to the disciples of Jesus Christ, not to the multitudes, not to the masses. And the important thing that I want to communicate to you here this morning is the preeminent importance of understanding that before you begin to put any of these disciplines into your life, before you begin to build them into the course of your life, you must understand that you have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is not an ethical treatise. This is not something some really smart guy a couple of thousand years ago put out there for people to improve themselves. This is something that Jesus Christ taught about the kingdom of God for those who would populate the kingdom of God, his disciples. How do I become his disciple, you ask? Well, very simply, you have to believe the gospel. Jesus' very first part of his proclamation message in chapter 4, verse 17 of the gospel of Matthew Jesus, as he began to preach, says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
So Jesus' very first words as he began to preach was, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. In the Gospel of Mark, it elaborates to say, And believe the gospel. So that was what Jesus began to preach and to teach. To repent. That is, to turn away from sin. To believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is near. That's what he is saying. The kingdom of heaven was near there in Matthew 4.17 because the king was there. And wherever the king is and wherever there is anyone willing to stop and to submit and to serve the king, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. So as we go through this series this summer, don't expect that it's going to do anything for your life if you have not been born again of the Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, there was a Sanhedrin, a group of 70 leaders who oversaw the life the religious, and the political life of Israel. And Nicodemus was one of those 70. And Nicodemus had a very privileged position out of the 70 in that he was the teacher of Israel. He was the one who would put forth interpretations of the law. And he came to Jesus one night. And he said, teacher, here's what I'm understanding. God must be with you because no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. Because Jesus had performed miracles. Jesus had been proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And Nicodemus, an intelligent man, understood this. And so he asked Jesus, if God's with you, what is it? What's your message? What's the the core thing that I need to understand and grasp? And Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? You must be born again of the Spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit, that will endure into the ultimate and eternal kingdom of God. And so that was the core message that Jesus conveyed to the teacher of Israel. And so, too, as he is teaching his disciples here, and by proxy, you and me, we must understand that this message is for disciples, for people who have repented, who have given their hearts to God, who have believed the gospel, and who have been born again of the Spirit. And I believe that to be the case of most everyone I am looking at here this morning. Praise the Lord. Thank God that we have been born again of the Spirit. Thank God that Jesus Christ came and died upon a cross, rose again from the dead three days later, and ascended into heaven. Why? So that you and I could be born again, could have new life, and could put into practice the principles of the kingdom of God, those principles that will apply not only throughout our lives here on earth, but into eternity after the resurrection. So that's what we're going for. That's what we're shooting at. We are 
aiming to build godly disciplines into our lives. To not assume that just because we've been born again, I've got my ticket, I'm on the train, that's good enough for me. Now, listen to what the apostle says. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body, making it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So the Apostle Paul is exhorting his readers, yeah, you've believed the gospel. Yes, you have your ticket on the train. But it's about so much more. You can have an abundant life. The enemy comes to rob and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that is really what he is teaching his disciples about in the Sermon on the Mount. He is teaching his disciples how to experience the abundant life, the Zoe life. Zoe, Z-O-E. It's a Greek word that means overflowing, effervescent life. It's a spiritual life. So Jesus begins to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say many kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are possessing of these attitudes in your heart. The word blessed there in the Greek is an interesting word. It's makarios. And really, some people say, well, it, 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 what, it, what it means is happy. More than blessed, happy would be a good word. But as I was researching it, happy really does not fully demonstrate what this word is about. Happy is an aspect of makarios, of being blessed. But happiness, at least in our Western culture, in our understanding of happiness, happiness is very uh, transitory. It comes and it goes. Sometimes it's there, and we have a hold of it, and life is good, 
and then something will happen to blow it away like a feather. Happiness comes from the same root that we get our word happenstance or happening from. And it means something that is there and then it's gone. So this word means much more than just being happy. It means being in a favored position, understanding that the posture that you possess as a believer, as a Christian, is a favored one. That the power that spoke into creation, all things that we see and do not see, favors us. We are in a position of grace. More than that, though, it means that we are filled to overflowing with a depth of joy that cannot be removed. And I like that. I like that because it's so much more meaningful and permanent than is happiness. Uh, A fullness of joy that is not able to be taken away. Blessed are we who are in the kingdom. And in the kingdom are possessors of these attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the poor in spirit, the poverty of spirit, is essentially those who recognize their spiritual wretchedness. The fact that with regards to presenting ourselves before God and making a boast in His presence, we are absolutely impoverished. Those of us who recognize that, spiritually speaking, we have nothing to commend ourselves unto God, when we come to Him with that understanding, with that recognition, that we don't have anything to lay at His feet, We're poor in spirit. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is yours. It's it's really the same attitude that uh, Isaiah had. First five chapters of Isaiah, if you've ever read Isaiah, is very interesting. Isaiah is just hammering Israel. Woe unto you for all of these various offenses that Israel has committed against the Lord. But then we come to Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. His train filling the temple, the glory of the Lord filling the earth, and Isaiah turns and says, Woe unto me, for my eyes have seen the Holy One. He was poor of spirit. He recognized he had nothing. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that all of her service has been completed and her sin has been paid for. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. 
So the Lord says, comfort, comfort my people. Your sins have been removed from you and you have received double. You are in a favored position. So those who mourn, those who repent, those who turn and grieve about their sin, they will be comforted. Because in the truth of the gospel, our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Here this morning, as you sit in these pews, here this morning, as you listen to my voice on the radio, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, there is not a single sin that you have ever committed or that you ever will commit that will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because Jesus Christ took that sin. He nailed it to the cross of Calvary. And he paid the price for it. Comfort for those who mourn for sin. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those who have the attitude of humility. The word here, meek, in the Greek, literally what it means is great power under restraint. The picture is a mighty steed, a a stallion who is full of power, but who is bridled, and who's able to be directed and utilized. Those of us who have taken upon ourselves the mantle of Jesus Christ have taken upon ourselves the mantle of humility. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, yet he emptied himself. And became a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Interesting. We don't have any physical descriptions of Jesus. And Jesus himself never described himself, except for in one portion of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am meek and humble of heart. So you're starting to get the picture here. These are the attitudes that those who have been born again, who live within the kingdom of God under the authority of Jesus Christ, have and develop in their lives. Poverty of spirit, a mourning over sin, a meekness or a humility in service to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus said when he was being tested in the wilderness, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. What do you hunger for here today? Do you hunger for more money? greater prominence, 15 minutes of fame on YouTube. I mean, that's honestly, if we did this from the world's perspective, verse 6 might read, blessed are those who get a million hits on YouTube. No, it says hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to live righteously. This is not talking about imputed righteousness, not talking about the robe of righteousness that God cloaks us with. This is talking about those who hunger and thirst to live righteously, 
to live according to the ways of the Lord. They will be filled with God's presence and God's power. See, that's the only way, church, that we can do it. I cannot live a righteous life in my own strength. My flesh is too strong. But when I rely upon the Holy Spirit within me, when I trust Him to work through me, guess what? All of a sudden, my hunger and thirst is to do things His way. And I have the empowerment to accomplish it. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Interesting, interesting word here translated merciful. It literally means to see from within the skin. That's literally what the word means, to see from within the skin. Now that sounds sort of weird, doesn't it? But what it's trying to communicate is an attitude of mercy that allows you to enter into someone else's experience, to see through their skin and to understand what they're going through, why they have offended, and to be able with that understanding and with the grace of God to forgive, to be merciful unto them. That, this is such an important thing, verse 7, because three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns us that if we don't forgive others their offenses against us, then neither will God forgive us. Why do you suppose it is that God holds forgiveness in such high importance? Because that's really what the gospel is about. It's about forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God. And that's why God demands it of us as his children. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And when we are merciful, we too are shown mercy from God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart here speaks of that person whose heart is absolutely given over to attention to God. You know, the Bible says that our hearts can be stained by the world. We can allow our hearts to be influenced in such a way that our attention is diverted from the things of God to the things of the world. We give more attention to what we hear from the world's media sources than what we read in this book. We go from being spotted by the world to being defiled by the world to ultimately being conformed to the world. That's the negative progression. But when we are pure in heart, we are focusing everything, all of our energy on God. And the promise is that we will see him. You know, whenever I'm having a difficult time hearing the word of the Lord, understanding that God is with me, what I have found is that I need to step back and take a good inventory of my life. And what I find more often than not is my life has become consumed with television, with activities that are divestments from 
the Word of God. Now, that's not to say that we don't have lives outside of the four walls of the church. But in everything you do, church, whatever your activity is, God's in the midst of it. There is not a sacred here and a secular out there. Wherever you go, you are a holy vessel that has been set apart for God's service in your workplace, in the restaurant, in the bar and grill, on your bike, wherever you go, you are a holy vessel for God. Last night, my wife, she's such an evangelist. I I just love to watch her at work. We're walking down the road, and there's some new people on our block. And she says, you know, we should go meet them. And lo and behold, we come around the corner, and they're walking towards us. And so we get into this conversation. One of the first things she does is says, do you have a church home? You, You should come and attend community church. We'd love to see you at community church. You know, again, being a holy vessel, just allowing the Spirit of God to flow out of you. I love that. We will see God when we are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Those of us who have received the offer of reconciliation from God, who have come to terms of peace with him based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called the children of God. That's what it says in in the gospel of John chapter 1. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who accepted him, To them, he gave the power to become children of God. God has done everything necessary to offer peace to humanity. The terms are out there. It's simply this, repentance and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit then enters you, regenerates you, makes you a new creation in Christ, and you are at peace with God and his child. Okay, all of this stuff sounds actually, you know, if you're spiritually minded at least, pretty wonderful. You know, inheriting the earth, being comforted, being shown mercy, seeing God. I like all of those things. Then I come to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The other parentheses. Verse 3, the first parentheses. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 10 now, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, yours is the kingdom of God. In fact, he goes on further. He uses two verses to describe this beatitude. Blessed are you, remember what blessed means, happy, full of joy that cannot be removed, in a favored position, So all of those things are true when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of your testimony of Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, here in America, we do not experience persecution in the same way that Christians in many other places in the world experience persecution. I mean, honestly, if if I'm transparent before you, there have been very few times where I've been insulted, 
where I've been, uh, had people say false evil against me. There have been some times. It's true. But, but it's not anything that I really fell down and began to weep about. read an article this week about Christians in the Middle East. It's an event that occurred not very long ago where Christians who were taken prisoner by ISIS had their children beheaded in front of them. 450 children beheaded in front of their parents, ages birth to four years of age, all with the intent that the the parents would renounce their faith, turn from their belief in Jesus Christ, and become followers of ISIS, Muslims. How blessed do you suppose those people felt? I can't get my brain around that sometimes. It's so intense. But Jesus promises that those people's reward in heaven is great. When they see their children again, when they see their Savior, and the full picture is revealed, this persecution that they experienced for the sake of the Lord, will make sense. They will understand it. And their reward will be great in heaven. They will rejoice and be glad. I doubt if they were rejoicing the day their children died. But the promise holds true nonetheless. We are blessed. So these beatitudes, these conditions of the heart are present within all of us who have given over our lives to Christ Jesus, who have become born again of the Spirit. And that's why I titled the message today, Being Precedes Doing. Because so often it happens that religion puts doing before being. And religion always fails. Because no matter how much I might want to fly, I'm not a bird. I don't have the nature that allows me to fly. But when I have the nature of flight, flight's no big deal. I was watching in my backyard yesterday these two morning doves flirt from rooftop to rooftop. And I'm not sure who was chasing who, but one was chasing the other. It was no big deal for them because it's in their nature. It must be in our nature, church. We must be born again. That's why Jesus didn't make it an optional thing to Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Because when it becomes our nature to do these things, to be these things, it's not burdensome. That's why John said, In in the first epistle of John, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome when you have a new nature, when you have these attitudes filling you because of that new creation. Jesus talks about this in verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. 
speaking of the church, those who believe, his disciples. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So Jesus was making the point that salt has a function. Salt, in proper measure, serves to flavor food, to preserve food, and to make people thirsty. And when it's used with its proper function, it's very valuable. Salt oftentimes was used as a payment for services in biblical times because of its value. But if it has no function, if it is no longer salty, all you can do with it is throw it down and make a pathway out of it. It no longer is able to be used as it is intended. Likewise, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Rather, they put it on its stand and give, it gives light to everyone in the house. So too, here Jesus calls the church the light of the world. He says, this is your nature, to be light. You are like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. But you know what? If you are the light of the world, Jesus would argue, you can't be hidden. You can't place the lamp underneath a bowl because light serves to illuminate, to help us to understand our surroundings. Again, in proper measure. If we look straight into the sun, we're not going to be able to see better. We're going to be able to see worse. But in proper measure, light serves to illuminate, to give understanding, perspective. But if we hide the light, none of that is able to be drawn out. Do you see what Jesus is trying to do here? He's trying to make the point that if you live out the new nature, you will be valuable. You will have function. You will have a purpose that serves. But if you don't, yeah, you may have your ticket. You may be on the train. But really, you're just a lamp under a bushel, your rock salt on the road. That's what we're going to be studying in the next several weeks, the godly disciplines that help give impetus to our new nature. Jesus says, and we'll conclude here, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Interesting. Jesus wants our lives to be so illuminating that others, when they see our lives, our deeds in action, they are drawn to them. And they recognize that there is a power behind them. And they give, ultimately, glory to God because of them. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved, and that through faith. It's not a work of your own. It's a gift of God. Then he says, you are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus, that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in. There is a pathway 
before each one of us. There is a purpose for each one of us to be salt, to be light, to bring glory to God through our lives. And just like the athlete training for the games, so too we need to train for that pathway, for that purpose. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift you have given us of new life in Christ and the teaching that you shared with us, Lord, about how to draw the very best out of that life. And I'm just thankful, Lord, that I share this pathway, this purpose with these wonderful saints, these men and women of God. Help us to walk that pathway together, Lord, for the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.